0: This is a Scream Queen production. Welcome to season four of So Dead. I'm your host, Jen Carpenter. I've missed you guys. I hope that you've all been doing okay since we last talked. It has been a few months. I always feel guilty when I take breaks, but my schedule just demands it at this point. It just, it just does. Uh, But I'm back as promised with a whole season full of true crime stories out of the mitten state. And as always, we're going to start the season off in a big way by talking about a notorious Michigan serial killer. Now, we all know that our stereotypical serial killer is the middle-aged white man, but today we're going to be talking about the rare female serial killer. In fact, Michigan actually has two notorious female serial killers. Well, more than that even, but um, one of those is a secret I'm keeping for later on, so... uh, We've got the two big ones. We'll just focus on on that fact right now. So there's Kelly Cochran. That is actually a pretty recent case. There was a special on the ID channel about her called Dead North that came out in 2018. And then season three of the podcast True Crime Bullshit is all about Kelly Cochran as well. This podcast is not about Kelly Cochran. Not today anyway. This one is about the OG Once branded America's first female serial killer, and that is 100% factually incorrect, but that's what they called her. Um, The angel of death, the damsel of death, the highway hooker. I hate that word. I can't believe I just said that on my show, but that was the term they used. And the Florida highway killer. Her friends simply called her Lee. That's right, pals. Today, we're going to be talking about Eileen Warnos, who may have done her murdering in Florida, but was actually born right here in Michigan. Before we get into her case, though, I'd like to thank today's sponsor. With the busy holiday season behind us, it's important to reprioritize yourself, especially with the days being cold and short. We do live in a mitten. Focusing on your health and finding a routine that works for you has to be a priority care of is a subscription service that ships high quality personalized vitamins supplements and powders conveniently to your door each month you just take a short in-depth quiz about your health goals and lifestyle and get personally tailored recommendations based on your answers you can order the supplements care of recommends or change up your pack at any time The quiz only takes a few minutes. It's super quick and user-friendly, and then at the end, you're given a list of recommendations as well as ordering options. Then this cute little box arrives in the mail with a list of all of the different supplements that are included. My favorite part is that the supplements come in these individual daily packets. Each packet has your name on it, so if you've got multiple people in the house doing care of, you won't get anything mixed up. And each packet also has a daily motivational quote, which I personally love. I take a lot of medications for various things, and I hate the whole sorting and measuring process, refilling my little daily pillbox every week. With Care Of, there is none of that. They do it all for you. You just rip your little packet open every day and consume the contents. Easy peasy. And today I've got a super sweet deal to offer So listeners, 50% off your first order. 50%. 50%. Try some things out, figure out what you like and boom, you've got a supplement regimen. Visit takecareofcom dead 50 to take advantage of this limited time offer today. Again, that is take so sodead 5050 for 50% off your first order. All right, back to business. Now, being that Eileen Wuornos is one of the most infamous serial killers in American history and definitely the most well-known female serial killer, there is a ton of material out there about her, but it all focuses on the things that she did in her later years with only a mention of her super fucked up childhood back in Michigan. Since So Dead is a Michigan-centric podcast, That is the part we're going to focus on today, that super fucked up Michigan childhood. And oh, oh, it was, it's so bad. Eileen Rornos was born Eileen Carol Pittman on Leap Day, February 29th, 1956, in Rochester, Michigan, which is a suburb of Detroit. It's a small town, only about 12,000 residents today, and it had less than half that back in the 1950s, under 5,000 people in town when Eileen was born. Rochester is home to Michigan's largest Christmas parade. Danny, are you listening? world's largest Christmas parade. It is not, however, to be confused with its super fancy neighbor to the south, Rochester Hills, which has a much larger population, over 76,000 people, and has been home to some pretty famous folks, including Madonna and Eminem. Rochester is, and was, a small bedroom community with weekend flea markets where everyone knows everyone which makes what was allowed to go on there back in the 50s and 60s all the more shocking. Eileen was the second of two children born to Leo and Diane Pittman, which was her first problem. Her parents, her father especially, they were not good people, and they were just children themselves. And by the time Eileen was born, they were already divorced. And... Eileen's father never even knew she existed, which was probably a good thing since the man was basically Satan. Leo Arthur Pittman was born on March 16, 1936 in Detroit, the youngest child and only son of Arthur and Lorraine Briggs. He had two older sisters, Nancy and Patsy. When Leo was just five months old, his parents abandoned him and his sisters, leaving them alone in their apartment overnight before someone alerted the children's maternal grandparents and they took them in. This is a scenario that will play out again later in our story in a very eerie way, so remember these details. Ida and Leo Pittman of Troy, another Detroit suburb, officially adopted their orphan grandchildren and gave them their last name. The Pittmans owned the town dump, and they kept a tidy little house across the street. They doted on Leo. He was a little redheaded, freckle-faced ball of fire. He had an explosive temper. He was physically and verbally abusive toward his grandparents and his sisters. By the time his grandfather died from throat cancer in his early teens, Leo called the shots in the Pittman home. He started skipping school, getting bad grades, and he was always in trouble with the principal. As the only man in the house, his temper got worse and he would strike his grandma in front of anyone when he got upset. He also vandalized their home frequently, smashing things and punching holes in walls. Sounds like a peach. Uh, He also liked to hunt, fish, swim, and torture animals. And he really liked girls, like obsessively so. Enter 14-year-old Diane Warnos, the sweet, quiet daughter of the town bigwig, Larry Warnos. Diane was beautiful, petite, with big, dark eyes, so it was no surprise that her father kept her on a tight leash. Larry Warnos did not allow his daughter to socialize outside of school. He didn't allow her to date. Whenever she broke the rules, the consequences were harsh and violent. Diane was the oldest of three children born to Larry and his wife, Britta, She had a brother, Barry, who was four years her junior, and a sister, Lori, who was much younger, almost 14 years younger than Diane. Larry, Diane's dad, held an executive position at Beaver Tool and Die, and he wore suits to work daily, which made him stand out in their working-class neighborhood. As did the sauna that the Wernos family had attached to their house— They didn't socialize at the local pub like the rest of the town folk. They didn't invite the neighbors over for dinner. Still, for all of his aloofness, people respected Larry Warnos, and they rarely questioned him. But there had been signs. That's my, for those of you that are obsessed with the ID channel like me, Evil Lives Here is my favorite show, and that's like their little tagline, right? Anyway, sorry about that. Their yellow-painted ranch house set back in the woods in a rural neighborhood in Troy was always quiet. The curtains were always drawn. There was no coming and going from the house. Some of Diane's high school friends got a bad vibe from her father, made worse by the times that Diane would sneak out in the middle of the night and hide in her friends' attics for days at a time, never telling them why she was on the run and why she was hiding from her parents. While I don't know that Diane has ever been fully honest about what went on in that house of horrors, she has shared that her dad was a creep and her mom became oddly hostile and jealous toward her once she hit puberty, almost as if they were romantic rivals. While she steadfastly maintained that her father never molested her or sexually abused her, she did admit that he would occasionally touch her inappropriately on accident. And that one time he said he wanted to kiss her and then kissed her the way a man would kiss his wife. That, um, that sounds like sexual abuse to me coming from your father, but okay. So Diane hated her home life, obviously. And when she met 17-year-old bad boy Leo Pittman with his motorcycle and his chiseled jaw and his big old red flags, she was like, yes, yes. Sign me up. On June 3rd, 1954, when Diane was 14 and Leo was 17, the two eloped with the permission of Leo's grandmother. And like, of course she gave permission. What She, she was, you know, she was a victim. She was one of Leo's victims. He, he was physically abusive to her. Was she going to tell him no? She wasn't going to tell him no. But Diane's parents were furious. Like, If Larry would have just killed Leo and Diane right then, it would have saved so many people from trauma and torture, but that is not what happened. The young couple made a home together in Rochester, which is only like five miles from Troy, so not very far from home, where they welcomed their first child just nine months after their scandalous wedding, a son, Keith Edward Pittman. Keith was not an easy baby. He cried all the time, and he made life very difficult. But he wasn't the only one torturing his poor mother. Once they were married, Leo went from Diane's knight in shining armor to her worst nightmare. He was physically and verbally abusive. He was a raging alcoholic. He controlled Diane's every move. She was not allowed to leave the house during the day, have the windows open, interact with men in anyway, like even the mailman, and as is always the case with men like Leo, he cheated on his wife constantly, daily. Apparently, the five to six times a day that he forced Diane to have sex with him was not enough to satiate him. If Diane's childhood home was unbearable, her life with Leo was torture, but about a year after they married, she was able to escape, albeit in a very unorthodox way. Not surprisingly, Leo had taken to a life of petty crime. He started by stealing car parts, then moved on to stealing whole-ass cars, um, furnishing liquor to minors, fighting, etc. In the summer of 1955, it all caught up to him, and he was arrested. He was given the option to either go to jail or join the Army. He joined the Army, and as soon as he left for training, Diane filed for divorce on the grounds of several acts of extreme and repeated cruelty— She was only 16 years old and had a three-month-old baby. Oh, and, unbeknownst to her, she was already pregnant with her second baby. Diane was granted her divorce on November 14, 1955, just three months before Eileen was born. She never did tell Leo about the second baby. Leo was ordered to pay child support, and Diane was given an allowance by the Army to pay for housing. Leo never saw his son again, and he never even laid eyes on his daughter. Now, because this is where Leo exits Eileen's story, we're going to skip ahead a bit so that I can tell you what became of him, because that is a whole thing. So, he did some time in the Army, came back home. So, in 1958, he was arrested for breaking and entering, and he was giving—I (laughs) keep— This is like the third time I've said this sentence. I'm only leaving this one in. I keep saying he was giving. He was given. G-I-V-E-N. He was given. There we go. Three years probation. In 1959, he was sentenced to six years in an Ohio prison for transporting stolen cars. He served three years of that sentence before being paroled. By September of 1962, Leo Pittman was married again with a young daughter and a pregnant wife. He was also on the run from federal authorities after violating his parole. He took his little family to Wichita, Kansas to hide out until the heat died down. But that did not happen. November 23, 1962 was a Friday. 26 year old Leo was out and about when a group of young children at a playground caught his attention. He parked his car near the playground, that approached the children. And the children weren't like, you know, afraid of him or anything. He was a good looking young guy, a dad. Maybe some of them knew him from the neighborhood. Um, he focused his attention on a seven year old girl. Gently easing her away from the rest of the group, he asked her if she wanted to go for a ride to see his pony, and of course she said yes because it was 1962 and stranger danger wasn't really a thing yet. Leo drove the girl a few miles out of town and, in the process, unwittingly crossed state lines, where he raped and brutalized her and threatened to kill her if she tried to run or fight him. When he was finished, he drove her right back to the playground and dropped her off, again threatening to kill her if she told anybody. She promised she wouldn't, but as soon as his car disappeared, she ran home and immediately told her grandmother what had happened to her. The severely traumatized little girl was rushed to the hospital, the police were called, and a manhunt ensued. A gas station attendant recognized the sketch of the attacker and his car and sent police to the motel room of Leo Pittman. He was arrested the day after the attack. He was charged with first degree kidnapping, forcible rape, and sodomy. He was also hit with capital charges for crossing state lines, and as a result, he faced the death penalty. While Leo awaited trial, authorities in Michigan began to look at him for a string of attacks on young girls in the Detroit area, one of which ended in murder. But in early April 1963, Leo Pittman was diagnosed with schizophrenia and was carted off to a psychiatric hospital, which he promptly escaped from less than two weeks later, along with two other patients. They used hacksaw blades, possibly slash probably slipped to Leo by his poor grandmother during a visit the day before, to saw the bars off a window, and then they just hopped right out. The FBI got involved, and it was a whole thing. Leo booked it back to Michigan where he was found four months later hiding out in Casanova. Not the restaurant, not the pizza place, the city. Listen, do we even have a Casanova? Because I know that we have a Casnovia, like I've heard of that, but I have never heard of a town in Michigan called Casanova. The restaurant, I remember, super good pizza, right? I don't know. The book definitely said Casanova. Maybe it was a typo. Maybe they changed the name of a city. I don't know. But that's, that's what the book that I was reading said was Casanova. <laughs> so once Leo was back in the custody of Michigan authorities, he had a whole bunch of charges to sort out. They weren't about to just ship him right back to Kansas. So while they were working on all of that, guess where they sent him? Come on. You know the place. Say it with me. The Ionia State Hospital for the Criminally Insane. Yes, friends, even the father of Eileen Warnos spent time at Ionia. In February of 1965, Leo Pittman left Ionia and was sent back to Kansas, and then in January of 1966, he finally went on trial for the attack on that seven-year-old girl. He was found guilty on all charges and was sentenced to life at hard labor at the Kansas State Penitentiary in Lansing, Lansing, Kansas, obviously not Lansing, Michigan, but just an odd little coincidence there. Life turned out to be just a little over three years because on January 30th, 1969, prison guards found Leo hanging from his bed sheet inside his cell. He was 33 years old. What I find so interesting is that even though she never met him, Eileen's life mirrored her father's in so many ways. It's kind of wild, and we're going to start getting into all of that now. So, back to Rochester, Michigan. 1955, Diane Wuornos is 16 years old, has a baby who's under a year old, is pregnant, and is newly divorced. She did not want to go back home to her awful parents, so she rented the top half of a duplex and some friends from high school who'd gotten married and had a couple babies of their own rented the bottom half of the duplex. On leap day 1956, Diane's little girl was born. She named her after her own mother, whose first name was Eileen. So, scary fact, there were two Eileen Mornoses at one point in time, and they both lived in Michigan. Just like her brother, Eileen was a difficult baby, fussing and crying all the time. But for about a year, Diane was the picture-perfect mother. She kept her house clean and her kids fed and tidy. They were happy-ish. Uh, she worked. She was attentive. As one friend put it, she would die for those goddamn kids. But um, she didn't. Uh, She started her life out as a single mother with a strong support system, a married couple she'd known since childhood living right downstairs, and that situation soon changed. The husband in the downstairs apartment was a philandering piece of shit, and soon his young marriage fell apart. So now it was Diane with two babies upstairs and her friend with two babies downstairs. And that that's a lot, but they helped each other out. Uh, one day when baby Eileen was somewhere between six and nine months old, which would have put Keith at about a year and a half, Diane left them with the downstairs neighbor to go out to dinner with a friend. And then she just never came back. No warning, no explanation, no phone call. She was just gone. Her friend was so stunned by Diane's disappearance that she didn't know what to do, so she just kept Eileen and Keith for like a week, waiting for Diane to come back, but she never did. So eventually, the friend called Eileen's parents to come get the babies, and they did. And that is when Eileen's fate was sealed. Oh yes, friends, everything leading up to this point has just been the warm-up, sadly. Larry and Britta Wernos were both first-generation Finnish immigrants. Larry was born in Minnesota on January 28, 1911, while Britta, who was born Eileen Britta Moylanen, I, I know I'm pronouncing her last name wrong, but that's how we're going to say it, Moylanen. Maybe Moilannan? We're saying Moylanen. She was born on February 1, 1917, in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, where Larry's family would later settle and where the two met. Now, there was a sentence in this book that I read about Eileen that like, it said, like many of their country folk, they settled in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. And we know from a previous episode that the reason Finnish immigrants flocked to the UP in the early 1900s was to work in the copper mines in Calumet. And we also know that that didn't turn out so well. It resulted in a little thing called the Italian Hall disaster. So when I made this connection, I did some Googling, and lo and behold, there were slash R lots of Calumet residents with the last names Wernos and Moylanin, Moylanin, whatever, which means there is a 100% chance that they worked in the mines and a 99% chance that they worked for Calumet and Hecla. So then, of course, I had to check the victim list from the Italian Hall Massacre, and I didn't find either of those last names on the list of victims anywhere. Larry, Eileen's grandpa, would have been just a couple years old when the disaster occurred, and Britta wasn't born yet, but she did have lots of siblings. So I bet you my left big toe that some of Eileen Wornos's relatives were at that ill-fated Christmas party when the disaster occurred. Isn't that wild? Next, we're going to be like linking Ted Bundy's great-grandpa to Titanic or something. Like, it's all just connected. It's all connected. Okay, back to the topic at hand. So Eileen was less than a year old when her mother abandoned her and her grandparents took her and her brother Keith, who was right around two years old, into their Troy, Michigan home. At the time, they still had two of their own children at home, Barry was around 13, and Lori was three and a half. So three kids under the age of four and a teenager. Not a good time. Not a good time at all. Listen, there are a lot of rumors about what went on in that house, and it's hard to know what's true. Lots of neighborhood chatter, lots of stories from Eileen herself later on, but she was a very unreliable narrator because her stories were always changing. Whether she intentionally lied or just misremembered things is up for debate. But there are some things that are pretty widely agreed upon. One, the Warnos family was very private and they didn't socialize much. Two, Larry Warnos was very strict. And three, by the time she was 11 years old, little Eileen was exchanging sex for money and cigarettes. So something was very very wrong there because that's just not something a little girl comes up with on her own one thing and not to bring up Ted Bundy again because who isn't sick of talking about him but this parallel is there just like good old Ted Eileen and her brother grew up thinking that their grandparents were their parents and that their mother was their sister They had little to no memory of their time with Diane as their mother. She was a forbidden topic in the Wernos' home. They were just babies when she abandoned them with a babysitter. And she was only 17 when that happened, by the way. She ran away to Texas, got married again to another man who was cruel and abusive just as Leo had been, And she signed away her rights to Eileen and Keith, allowing their grandparents to legally adopt them and change their last name from Pittman to Wornos. When Diane's second marriage fell apart, she was only 18. Her father convinced her to return home to Michigan, but she quickly realized that there was no place for her. Britta was not just protective over Eileen and Keith, which no one could blame her for that. Um, They were toddlers now, but she was downright territorial. She felt threatened by Diane's presence, the same way that she had seen her kind of as a romantic rival, which is disgusting. She now saw her as a rival for the affection of these babies, which is also disgusting. Babies need all the love in the world, right? Like, ugh. So Britta was determined to keep a divide between Diane and her children, but Larry wanted his daughter to take responsibility for her responsibilities, take responsibility for your responsibilities. Um, And soon Diane was in an apartment on her own, taking care of her two young children again. But it didn't last long. One evening, Diane left the kids with her teenage cousin to babysit and she never returned. This time, she called at least to let her family know that she was not coming back. And this time, she was gone for good. Her return to motherhood was so brief that Eileen and Keith didn't remember it or her at all. Their first memory of their birth mother is when she returned over a decade later under tragic circumstances. Eileen and Keith were a handful growing up. They cried constantly as babies were defiant and rage-filled toddlers, and were troublemakers at school. Keith fit in better than his sister did, though. He made friends, at least. Eileen had a wild temper, and she never got along with her peers, so she always tagged along with Keith and his friends. They were around 11, 12 years old when they found out that their parents were really their grandparents, which very suddenly made disciplining them, which was already a task, that much harder the whole... You're not my dad thing. This was also right around the time that Eileen became known as the cigarette bandit because she would meet up with boys in the woods near her house and have sex with them or perform other sexual favors in exchange for cash and or cigarettes. Most of the boys in the neighborhood lost their virginity to Eileen, but this didn't make her popular. On the contrary, it just made all the kids hate her even more. At Eileen's trial years later, her brother-slash-uncle Barry insisted that they had a perfectly normal home life. He testified, We were a pretty straight and narrow family, just a normal upbringing for all of us. This contradicts not only what Eileen had been telling people her entire life, but also what the kids who grew up with Eileen and Keith knew, not just because of things that they were told, but because of things that they saw. So... Here are some unsubstantiated claims, but ones that seem to be common knowledge at the time among those who knew the Wernos family. A. Eileen claims to have had an incestuous relationship with her brother, Keith. By the time this information became public knowledge, Keith was dead and he was unable to confirm or deny. And again, Eileen is not a reliable narrator, but this is something that all of Keith's friends knew growing up. It wasn't really hidden within their inner circles. So that one is probably true. Two, Eileen claimed that her grandfather raped her repeatedly from a young age and that she lost her virginity to him. Eileen's grandfather was also dead by the time these stories went public, and of course, Larry wasn't out there bragging to friends about having sex with his granddaughter, so this one is a bit harder to confirm, but I would say the fact that Eileen was selling sex by the age of 11 is a pretty strong indicator that something was going on in that home. C. Eileen said that her grandfather used to pass her around to his friends. Again, Nothing that can be substantiated, but it would not surprise me at all. Were all of Eileen's wild claims about her childhood true? Probably not. But by their early teens, she was the neighborhood sex worker and Keith was the neighborhood drug dealer. So Barry Wuornos' claim that they had a normal upbringing... upbringing, They Had a normal upbringing. That they had a normal upbringing was... <laughs> Just not, like, there's, no, that there's nothing normal about any of this. 1971 was a rough year for Eileen. In January, when she was just 14, she confessed to her parents that she was seven months pregnant, something they somehow failed to notice on their own. They promptly shipped her off to Florence Crittenden's unwed mother's home in Detroit. On March 24th, 1971, Less than a month after her 15th birthday, Eileen gave birth to a 7-pound, 11-ounce baby boy with thick, dark hair that she called Keith. She was not allowed to hold him, even for a moment, before he was whisked away and put up for adoption. The baby's birth certificate was sealed, but Eileen later told people that she'd listed her grandfather, Larry, as the father. She told others that the baby was her brother's, And she told some people that the baby belonged to a neighbor, a man in his 50s, who she was known to have had a sexual relationship with. In exchange, he supplied her with cigarettes, booze, cash, and rides around town. To this day, it's unknown who the father of Eileen's baby was. We also have no idea what happened to said baby, but he would be like 50, 51 years old today. I wonder if he knows who he is. That would be a wild 23andme DNA result, right? When Eileen was discharged from the home for unwed mothers, it was her grandfather who picked her up. She was terrified to see him standing there alone, terrified of the long drive back to Troy, just the two of them. But to her relief, he said, "Mom's in the car. She's been sick lately. She's sleeping in the back seat." Thus began Eileen's next nightmare. Because she'd hidden her pregnancy from everyone and because it wasn't unusual for her to disappear for months at a time for stints in juvie, and because she didn't have any friends to confide in, Eileen returned to Troy High School without anyone knowing she'd ever been pregnant. But things at home were more strained than ever. Her mother-slash-grandmother was sick. Her father-slash-grandfather hated her more than ever and had gotten even meaner somehow. She dropped out of school, for good this time fell deep into a pit of alcoholism and drug use and was in and out of juvie and was in and out of the Warnos family home until Larry kicked her out for good just months after she gave birth at the age of 15 to what may or may not have been Larry's child. With nowhere to go, Eileen lived in the woods near her home. She slept in abandoned cars and makeshift forts and She was able to see her customers freely now, which was how she survived. She used that money to feed herself because nobody was supporting her. But she wasn't the only one who'd been kicked out of the house. Larry sent Keith, now a habitual user and seller of drugs, packing right around the same time. So it was just him and Lori home on one summer afternoon in 1971 when Britta Wornos died under suspicious circumstances. The Warnhouse matriarch had been sick for months. Unbeknownst to her younger children, she'd been a raging alcoholic for years, and her liver eventually gave out on her. Her decline came on quickly, though. Following Eileen's secret pregnancy and her and Keith both being banned from the house, Britta became erratic, almost senile, and completely physically disabled. In June of 1971, Larry took Britta away for a few days to help calm her nerves, When they returned home, she was sicker than Lori had ever seen her. She was confined to her bedroom. She even missed Lori's high school graduation. She began having seizures. She couldn't eat or go to the bathroom on her own. And then at 5 a.m. on the morning of July seventh, 1971, Larry exited the bedroom he shared with his wife and instructed Lori to go in and check on her. He said, "'Feel her pulse. Feel if she's alive.'" Why the fuck are you putting something like that on your teenage daughter? Lori protested, but Larry insisted, so Lori went into the bedroom and found her mother lying lifeless, cold to the touch. It was obvious to her that Brita was dead, so Larry absolutely knew she was already gone before he sent Lori in to check on her. Larry didn't call for an ambulance until afternoon, over seven hours after he forced his teenage daughter to look at her mother's dead body. Lori took it upon herself to tell her younger siblings she found Eileen in the woods where she'd been staying for months. She notified Keith, who was staying with friends. Larry broke the news to his eldest daughter, Diane, who was now thrice divorced and living in Texas, raising two kids by herself. He called her and said, The funeral's over and she's been cremated, but I just wanted to let you know that you killed your mother. That's how he told her that her mom was dead. He then threatened to kill Eileen and Keith if she didn't come get them. So she did something she swore she'd never do and she returned to Michigan. And this was the first real memory that Eileen and Keith had of her. She wanted to take them back to Texas, but neither of them was interested in going. They'd both been completely on their own for months. Keith was 16. Eileen was 15. Keith had a whole friend support group. Eileen didn't, but she had a way of life that she'd grown accustomed to, I guess you could say. Um, And so Diane didn't push too hard. According to her, Texas authorities wouldn't permit her to take her kids back to Houston, Because a single mother to two children already, they didn't feel that she'd be able to cope with two more children who were already in trouble with the law in words of the court. So, she returned to Texas alone, leaving Eileen and Keith to twist in the wind once again. Now, what's suspicious about a raging alcoholic dying from cirrhosis of the liver at the age of 54? Nothing on the surface, but... When Diane arrived back in Michigan after her mother's death, she checked into a hotel because she didn't want to be anywhere near her father. When she called him to tell him that she was back and staying in a hotel, he said, What's the matter? If you stay, you think I'm going to kill you too? Diane took immediate note of his use of the word, too. Suspecting foul play, even after being assured by authorities that wasn't the case, Diane requested a copy of Brita's autopsy report. Her body was covered with bruises, which was strange considering the fact that she couldn't even get out of bed by the time she died. Additionally, and perhaps most suspiciously, Larry repeatedly went out of his way to tell people that he didn't kill Britta. I didn't kill her, even though nobody was accusing him. Hey, how's it going, Larry? Sorry about Britta. Yeah, I didn't kill her. Like, that's not suspicious at all. Eileen had never had an easy life, but 1971 definitely took its toll. She gave birth to her first and only child at the age of 15, no less, and wasn't even allowed to hold him. Her father kicked her out of the house permanently. The mother who raised her died. Her birth mother made a brief reappearance only to disappear again. At this point, any hope that Eileen had of having a good, normal life was completely out the window. She was lost. Before we start traveling the country with Eileen, I want to wrap up her life here in Michigan. After Britta's death, Larry completely lost it. And by it, I mean everything. His job, his house, his family, his sanity— Lori, his only child still at home, moved out. She eventually got married and made a new life for herself. She moved all over. She lived in Colorado. She lived in Arizona. Larry sold the family home and moved to Utica, Michigan, near where his son, Barry, his favorite child, lived with his family. Then he moved up north for a while, then back to Utica and into Barry's basement. On March 12, 1976, he took his own life by carbon monoxide poisoning. After Barry left for work that morning, Larry went out to the garage, got into his car, and turned on the engine. Barry found him dead, slumped across the front seat when he returned home from work that evening. While they wanted to believe that Larry's death was an accident, that he'd maybe, like, had a stroke or a heart attack after starting his car, but before he was able to open the garage... They knew the truth. This was not the first suicide attempt. He had once gone into the basement of his home, which had flooded following a torrential rainstorm, stood into water up past his ankles, and flipped on an electric light switch, hoping to electrocute himself. It didn't work that time, unfortunately. But finally, the monster who had loomed so largely over Eileen's life was dead at the age of 65. Within a few months, her brother Keith, her Irish twin who she both loved and hated and possibly had an incestuous relationship with, was also dead. In 1974, shortly after he signed with the U.S. Army, 18-year-old Keith found a lump in his neck and was diagnosed with cancer. He spent two years in treatment before passing on July 17, 1976. He would have been 21 at the time. Yeah, he was born in 55, so he would have been 21. And just like that, at barely 20 years old, all of the significant men in Eileen Wornos's life were gone. Her birth father, who she never met, but who inarguably passed some of his worst traits on to his daughter, was dead by suicide. Her son, her only child, had been taken from her at birth. The father who raised and abused and tormented her was dead by suicide. And the brother had been by her side through all of it was gone now too. But have no fear. Just as all of the men in Eileen's life were exiting stage left, she found a new one. The same year that her father slash grandfather and brother died, Eileen got married to a sixty-nine year old Florida millionaire by the name of Louis Gratzfell. She was twenty. He was fifty years older than her. Fifty years older. I digress. The two met in the spring of 1976 when Lewis spotted Eileen hitchhiking on a Florida highway and offered her a ride. They were married in May, just two months after the death of Eileen's father-slash-grandfather, and in July of 1976, Eileen made a big show of bringing her rich husband home to Michigan. Things did not go well. It was obvious to all that Eileen was simply after the man's money and that Lewis was a stereotypical rich old creep who wanted a pretty young blonde on his arm. While Eileen had money, more than she knew what to do with for the first time in her life, it wasn't enough to bridge the differences between a 70-year-old yacht club president from a wealthy family and a 20-year-old sex worker from the wrong side of the tracks. Eileen brought immediate shame to the Fell name, and I mean immediate. She was constantly getting into trouble for her drunken antics, and she was arrested repeatedly for fighting in bars. In one incident, she went after her elderly husband and beat him with his own cane. And so, just a month into their unholy matrimony, Louis Gratz Fell filed a restraining order and filed for divorce. The divorce decree stated, Respondent has a violent and ungovernable temper and has threatened to do bodily harm to the petitioner. Their divorce was finalized on July 19, 1976, just two days after Eileen's brother died from cancer. And with that, Eileen went back to her wandering ways, hitchhiking across the country. Every now and then, she'd find her way to her sister Lori's. Lori would take her in for a short time, they'd fight, and Eileen would be gone with the wind again. There were arrests, jail sentences, suicide attempts. In 1981, Eileen was arrested in Florida for armed robbery. She robbed a convenience store of $35 cash and two packs of cigarettes with a twenty-two caliber pistol she'd picked up at a pawn shop that morning, and she was sentenced to three years in prison. She served 18 months, and she was released in August of 1983. The next several years were just as chaotic for Eileen as the first three decades of her life had been. Violence, arrests, failed relationships, sex work, more violence. And then in June of 1986, 30-year-old Eileen met 24-year-old Tyra Moore, who went by Ty at the Zodiac, which was a gay bar in Daytona. Ty worked housekeeping at a local hotel, and according to friends, it was love at first sight for the two. They moved in together, although Eileen was often gone for work for days at a time. She she told Ty she owned a pressure-washing business. A pressure-washing business. In reality, she was a sex worker. Ty, who was said to be good-hearted, if not simple-minded, had always been attracted to women, even as a child. There had never been any question about her sexuality. Eileen, on the other hand, had grown to loathe men, who could blame her, and that was the driving force behind her taking up with a woman, according to those who knew her. But later, Eileen would say, It was love beyond imaginable. Earthly words cannot describe how I felt about Tyra. So... Who who knows? Before long, Ty was caught up in Eileen's chaotic life. A church going woman with a sad backstory, Ty had never been in legal trouble before Eileen, but they quickly became partners in crime. And that crime soon escalated. November 30th, 1989, was a Thursday. After a long day of pressure washing in Fort Myers, Eileen was dropped off by a client on I-4 near Tampa, which is where 51-year-old Richard Mallory found her. A TV and VCR... VCR... A TV and VCR repair shop owner in Palm Harbor, the gray-haired divorcee with wire-rimmed glasses and crippling debt was not very popular with the ladies, which was why he was a big fan of sex workers and strip clubs. Both Eileen and Richard Mallory were headed toward Daytona, clear across the state, about a three-hour drive, so Richard offered Eileen a ride. Like, in a ride... The drive was pleasant enough. They drank, they smoked, they talked, they listened to music, and then as they approached Daytona, where they would part ways, things took a turn. It was around 5 a.m. when they pulled off onto a deserted street to get down to business. Eileen got out of the car and stripped her clothes off and asked Richard to do the same. She told him, it'll hurt if you don't, meaning that, like, the buttons and the zippers on his jeans would hurt her if he just kept his pants on. He refused, not wanting to be left feeling vulnerable, was that show called Naked and Afraid? He didn't want to be naked and afraid, so suddenly and for a pretty small reason, things got real tense between them. Eileen, who was all of five foot four, was standing naked in the dark in the middle of nowhere, arguing with a man much bigger than her who wanted to have sex with her. She wasn't into it anymore and was now worried that he was going to rape her. So she reached into the car to grab her purse, and he lunged for her but she was faster. She whipped out her twenty two and screamed, you son of a bitch, I knew you were going to rape me. Despite Richard's protests that that was not at all what he was planning to do, she fired once into his right arm and the bullet went through his torso. Richard climbed out of the car and tried to crawl away, but Eileen met him at the front end of the vehicle and fired several more times. Once Richard Mallory was dead, Eileen took the ID and cash from his wallet and covered his body with a bit of debris. Then, still naked, she drove his Cadillac to a secluded spot nearby, put her clothes back on, and drank the last beer from the six-pack that Richard had bought her earlier in the night before going home to tie at the Ocean Shores Motel in Daytona where they were living. She told Ty she'd borrowed the car, and she made no mention of the fact that she'd just committed her first murder. Officers found Richard Mallory's blood-stained, abandoned car the next day, traced it back to him, and obviously had no luck trying to reach him at home or work, so they began searching for him. Whether as a victim or a suspect, they weren't really sure. It was nearly two weeks before they found his body. The night of the murder, Eileen casually mentioned to Ty, "'I killed a guy today.' And then they went back to watching TV and drinking beer together. Ty wasn't sure whether she believed Eileen or not. Eileen was well known for her tall tales. But a couple weeks later, when Ty saw a news report on Richard Mallory's murder, including photos of the car that Eileen had driven home that night, there was no longer any doubt. Ty's girlfriend was a killer. She didn't know what to do about that, so she did nothing. Six months later, on May 18th, 1990, 47 year old construction worker David Spears was on his way home from Sarasota to Winter Garden, which is near Orlando, where his wife lived. Technically, his ex wife. The high school sweethearts and parents of three children had split in 1984, but by the time their divorce was finalized, they had reconciled. And in 1990, they were re engaged. They were planning to get remarried. According to friends and family, David was a good guy. Honest, responsible, devoted to his family. But something made him stop along I-4 that Saturday afternoon and pick up the petite blonde who was looking for a ride and more. Something made him drive off in the opposite direction toward Homosassa. I looked up how to say that. Um, Homosassa, where Eileen told him she lived, but she did not. The two wound up deep in the woods off US-19, just outside of Homosassa, around 1 or 2 a.m. They were drinking, fooling around, and they wound up naked. And then, like a switch, Eileen claimed that David got violent. He ordered her into the back of his truck, where she spied a lead pipe and freaked out. Her fight or flight kicked in, and she decided to do both. She fled from the back of the truck, with David chasing after her made her way to the passenger door where her trusty twenty-two was waiting in her purse. She fired once, wounding but not killing him. He ran to the driver's side door, got in, and he tried to drive away. Eileen said, What the hell you think you're doing, dude? I'm going to kill you because you were trying to do whatever you could with me. Eileen shot David Spears five more times before leaving him where he lie and driving away, naked again, in his truck. She took his money, hundreds of dollars that he kept stashed in his truck because he didn't like banks, and then she ditched his truck the next day. David's family reported him missing immediately. They knew something had happened. They had to wait the requisite 24 hours before a police would officially declare him a missing person. Uh, Nearly two weeks later, on June 1st, his naked body was found lying right where Eileen had left it. But the day before David Spears's body was found, Eileen Morrnos claimed her third victim, officially making her a serial killer. Forty year old rodeo writer Charles Karskaden, Karskaden, I don't know, We'll say Karskaden, um, left his mother's Missouri home at around four o'clock. On May 31st, 1990, headed to Tampa to pick up his fiance Peggy. He was taking her back to Missouri where he just landed a new job so that they could start their new life together. But somewhere along I-75, just outside of Tampa where Peggy was waiting for him, Chuck's plans changed when he crossed paths with a petite blonde sex worker. According to Eileen, the two agreed to a transaction and drove off the beaten path for some alone time. Again, things took a violent turn. Eileen felt threatened, and so she unloaded her revolver into Charles Karskadon in the back seat of his Cadillac. When she found a forty-five on his dash, was he planning to kill her? And only $20 in his wallet, she was so pissed that she reloaded her gun and shot him twice more just for her funsies. Then she shoved him out into the dark night and she took his car home. Whereas she typically ditched her victims' vehicles pretty quickly, this one she kept for over a week before getting rid of it. On June seventh, 1990, 65-year-old missionary Peter Symes loaded his Pontiac Sunbird with Bibles and left his Jupiter, Florida home to go out and spread the good word. He hasn't been seen since. His wife of 25 years was doing missionary work in Europe with one of their sons, so Peter made plans to travel. He was going to drive I-95 all the way to New Jersey to visit his mother, then go to Arkansas to stay with one of his sons for a week. He didn't make it that far. According to Eileen, she met the retired Merchant Marine somewhere outside of Bonnell, Florida, which is a couple hundred miles north of Jupiter. After driving here, there, and everywhere, possibly crossing state lines a couple of times, the unlikely pair ended up in the woods about 10 miles from I-95. They took their clothes off, Peter laid a sleeping bag down on the ground, and then, per Eileen, he did... Unspeakably sick things to her, so she shot him, robbed him, and took his car back to Daytona. On the fourth of July, nearly a month later, Eileen and Ty were out on a patriotic joyride when they crashed Peter Simes's car and were spotted by witnesses who were later able to help the police complete composite sketches. By the time authorities arrived at the scene of the accident, Eileen and Ty were long gone. They ran the plates, and they came back as belonging to Peter Symes, who was listed as missing and endangered. So, so the hunt for the two strange women who had crashed his car was on. Troy Burris was a 50-year-old sausage salesman from Ocala, Florida. He was a husband, father, and grandfather who loved people and could charm anyone. On July 30, 1990, he disappeared while out on his sausage-delivering route. According to Eileen, he approached her for a little afternoon delight, but once they were alone and she had stripped naked, he threw a $10 bill at her and said, this is all you fucking deserve, you fucking whore. Then he told her he was going to rape her. The two began to struggle, so when Eileen had the opportunity to grab her gun, she shot him. What else could she do? As was becoming a sick, sad ritual, she left his body exactly where it fell when he died, then robbed him and stole his sausage truck. Troy's body was found five days later. September 10, 1990, was Dick Humphrey's 35th wedding anniversary. He and his wife celebrated by going out for a fancy dinner. They were celebrating something else, too. The following day, September 11th, was Dick's last day at a job that he loathed. He'd taken a new position within Florida's Department of Health and Rehabilitative Services. Here we just call it CPS, pretty much. Um, And he was anxious for a new beginning. Dick had worn a lot of hats in his 56 years of life. He had been a major in the US Air Force and a police chief in rural Alabama, among other things. And just like Eileen, he grew up just outside of Detroit. What are the chances? You're just a Michigan boy driving down a Florida highway looking for a sex worker. And lo and behold, the gal you pick up is just a Michigan girl out there pressure washing for a living. I wonder if they talked about like Coney dogs and Euchre on their drive. They definitely talked about snow. Guarantee it. So September 11th, Dick leaves the office a bit early on his last day because he had some loose ends to tie up. He worked in child custody and welfare matters, so he made a lot of field calls. He stopped and visited an old client. He went to some seedy motel looking for another client. And then sometime after 4 p.m., and before he was due home at 6 p.m., he encountered Eileen Warnos. Dick was Eileen's sixth victim, so we know how this story goes. They pulled off somewhere secluded agreed to the terms of their transaction. Eileen took her clothes off. Something went wrong. She felt threatened, so she pulled out her gun and unloaded it into her victim. Dick Humphreys was shot seven times, robbed, and left lying on the side of the road while Eileen took off in his Oldsmobile Forenza. Because of Dick's profession and the connections that he had, he was labeled as endangered-missing within hours. But just like in the movies, it was not police that found him. It was two kids out riding bikes that discovered his body the day after his murder. By this point, police were starting to realize they had a real problem. Florida, as we know, is home to all of the crime. But six middle-aged white men found shot dead, lying in the road, many of them naked, in secluded areas just off the highway. All robbed, all of their vehicles stolen, all shot with a 22 were they dealing with a serial killer? If the murders were all connected, then police already had descriptions and composite sketches of their suspects from when Peter Symes' vehicle crashed Two homely white women in their 30s. But women weren't serial killers. It was unheard of. It actually wasn't at all, but the term serial killer was still fairly new and had only thus far been used on the likes of Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, David Berkowitz, and the like. Never on a woman. One thing police realized once they started piecing it all together was that most of these men were larger. They were in like the six foot, 200 pound range. But when their vehicles were found, the driver's seats were pushed all the way up to the steering wheel like they would be if a small woman had been driving. Eileen didn't just take money from her victims. She took any property she thought might have value and often pawned it. At one pawn shop, she was required to leave her fingerprints. She gave a fake name, but fingerprints don't lie. And those same fingerprints from the pawn shop were found on items in some of the victims' vehicles. A media campaign was launched to distribute the sketches of the two women involved in crashing Peter Symes' car. Simes was still missing, by the way. He is still missing. His body is the only one that was never found. Authorities shared descriptions, dates, times, locations. You know, if you were at this place on this date, if you saw this, that, you know, that that whole thing. They cast a wide net across the swampy sunshine state, and it quickly began to close in on Eileen and Ty. But not quickly enough, Eileen's final victim was 62-year-old Reserve Police Officer Walter Antonio. His nude body was found in a remote area of Dixie County, Florida, on November 19, 1990. He'd been shot four times with a 22. he He'd also been robbed, and his car was missing. Before we talk about the inevitable downfall of the serial killer branded The Damsel of Death, I want to thank today's other sponsor, Experience full plates and full wallets with America's Best Value Meal Kit. Every plate's quality ingredients come carefully packed and pre-portioned, helping you reduce food waste and, more importantly, helping you save time. Grocery shopping is a mess right now, right? I usually have to go to at least three different stores to find everything on my list. Well, no more treasure hunting for ingredients. No more buying an entire head of lettuce when you only need one cup. Every plate does all of the guesswork and heavy lifting for you and then delivers it right to your door. And it's affordable. While most meal kits come with a premium price tag, every plate offers delicious meals that won't break the bank. Now you, my friends and colleagues, can give every plate a try with this special offer for so dead listeners, just $1.79 per meal. That is less than a cup of coffee. That's less than two items from a value menu. Shoot, it's hardly more than a single item at the $1.25 store at this point. (laughs) To try EveryPlate for just $1.79 per meal, visit everyplate.com and enter code SODEAD179. Again, that's everyplate.com, promo code SODEAD179 for healthy, delicious, easy-to-make dinners at just $1.79 per meal. All righty. Let's wrap this one up. I feel like I've been talking for four hours. On January 9th, 1991, just over a year after her first murder, 34-year-old Eileen Mornos was arrested outside the Last Resort Biker Bar in Port Orange, Florida, on an outstanding warrant, which that was all they told her, was that there was an old warrant. They didn't mention the murders at all. I'm sure she knew. Um, They didn't notify the press, nothing. They just took her into custody quietly. The Last Resort, side note, is still open today. And they have totally leaned into being the place where Eileen Wornos had her last beer and the place where her reign of terror came to an end. Their slogan is Home of Ice Cold Beer and Killer Women. They sell Eileen Wornos hot sauce and t shirts, and they have paintings and photos of her at the bar. So, if you ever find yourself in Port Orange, Florida, definitely stop in to The Last Resort. On January 10th, 1991, the day after Eileen's arrest, Pennsylvania officers took Ty into custody in Scranton, Pennsylvania, where the infamous Dunder Mifflin Paper Factory is located. She and Eileen had recently broken up, and she'd gone back home to get away because she was terrified of Eileen by this point. Now, Police were confident that they had the right people in custody, but they still weren't sure what was going on. Did they do the murdering together? Was one the killer and the other simply an accomplice? And if so, who was who? Ty immediately told them everything she knew, and authorities found her story to be credible. Eileen had told her about three of the murders, but that was all she knew. She was shocked to find out that there had actually been seven In exchange for immunity from prosecution, she agreed to help elicit a confession from Eileen, and she was taken back to Florida. Under the guidance of police, she called Eileen several times. They talked on the phone, and Ty told her that police were going to charge them both with all of the murders. But that if Eileen came clean and confessed what really happened, she could clear Ty's name. So basically... You're fucked, but you can save me if you come clean. And after a few days, Eileen's love for Ty won out over her desire for self-preservation. On January 16th, six days after her arrest, Eileen confessed to all seven murders. But she claimed they were all done in self-defense. Now, I told most of these encounters from Eileen's perspective, what she said happened. According to her All of the men picked her up knowing that she was a sex worker with the intention of having sex with her. Then the men got violent. They tried to rape her. She defended herself. But most of these men's families don't buy that at all. These were good, wholesome family men, a retired sheriff, a missionary, fathers, husbands. They wouldn't solicit sex, let alone try to rape someone. There had to be something else to the story, Eileen must have pretended to need help. That was the only acceptable excuse for these men allowing Eileen into their vehicles. But then, like, why were they naked? Just like Eileen's story of these men being violent rapists who picked up sex workers didn't make sense to their families, the family stories of these men being saints on earth that would have only let Eileen into their cars if she tricked them, those stories don't fly with me. The truth is probably somewhere in between. Eileen suffered from severe mental illness. We know that. Once in custody, she was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and antisocial personality disorder. She had a family history of schizophrenia, depression, alcoholism. She had a horrific upbringing. That whole nature versus nurture debate didn't matter in Eileen's case because she was fucked either way. All of her victims were middle-aged white men. Is it possible that she was taking revenge against her abusive grandfather and his gross friends that were said to have raped her and passed her around when she was little? That she lost her temper with men whose only crimes were that they reminded her of the men she couldn't protect herself from growing up? Absolutely. I mean, that that's absolutely possible. But is it also possible that out of the hundreds, if not thousands of Johns that solicited sex from Eileen, some of them got violent? That family men, police chief, business owners, missionaries, that good, upstanding citizens can lead secret lives, once that their families know nothing about? That they can have dark sides, be violent in one moment, then passing out Bibles the next? Uh, yeah, yeah, it is possible, and we all know that, right? Like, we know that. At least one of Eileen's victims, her very first, actually, Robert Mallory, was a convicted rapist. So then that kind of spins forth another idea. What if Robert Mallory did try to rape her or did rape her and then sort of set off this paranoia within Eileen to where she sometimes perceived danger where there wasn't any and felt she had to protect herself? I do believe that whether these men actually got violent with Eileen and tried to rape her or not, she absolutely believed her life was in danger. And I could be wrong. My empathy for a woman who did not have a chance in hell at a normal life could be leading me astray here. But, um, you know, she very well could have been just evil as fuck. But I just don't like that is not what I see here. But my opinion is moot. Moo, as Joey Tribbiani would say. Eileen's fate was dependent on a jury that decided it didn't matter what her mental state was. It didn't matter that she had a very low intelligence and was almost childlike. Her IQ was 81, which is at the very low end of below average, almost to the borderline deficiency category. It didn't matter if some of the men she killed were rapists and sex offenders. It didn't matter if it was self-defense. You just can't go around killing a bunch of middle-aged white men, lady. So Eileen was, of course, convicted, and she was sentenced to death six times over. In a statement to the court, Eileen said, I wanted to confess to you that Richard Mallory did violently rape me, as I've told you, but these others did not. They only began to start to. Then, following her conviction, she said that none of the men had raped her or tried to rape her, that her motive was robbery, and then she just didn't want to leave any witnesses behind, so she killed them. And then, perhaps most tellingly, and this is the story I give the most weight to because it involves a third party that has no reason to lie, while filming a documentary about a decade after her conviction with filmmaker Nick Broomfield, when Eileen thought the cameras had been turned off. She confided in Nick that it really was self-defense in all seven killings, but that she hated being on death row. She'd been there for 10 years at this point, and she just wanted to die, so she kind of spun the story so that they would speed up her execution and stop with the appeals. And she was eventually put to death. On October 9th, 2002, Eileen was executed by lethal injection at Florida State Prison. She declined her last meal, instead requesting just a cup of coffee. Her final words were, Yes, I would just like to say that I'm sailing with the rock and I'll be back, like Independence Day with Jesus, June 6th like the movie, big mothership and all, I'll be back, I'll be back. Per her request, Eileen was cremated. Her ashes were returned to Michigan where they were scattered under a tree. And that is the super fucked up origin story of Eileen Wornos, the most infamous female serial killer in the world, a born and raised Michigan girl. Thank you for coming to my dead talk. My primary source for today's episode was the book Lethal Intent by Sue Russell, which is <laughs> This is like a 700-page book. So if you want to know everything there is to know about Eileen Wornos, this is the book that you want to read. Uh, You can find a full list of my sources on the page for this episode on the So Dead website. I do plan to continue the liquid cheese segments this season, where I just kind of share off the wall, strange stories with you at the end of every episode. And I've got a pretty wild one lined up. But today's episode has been sixteen to seventeen hours long already, so we'll save (laughs) we'll save it for the next episode, and we'll start the liquid cheeses back up then. Um, yeah, so season 4 just real quick. Um, I'm here. I'm doing it. Things are going to run pretty much the same way they did last year, so there will be new episodes every other Tuesday. Uh breaks in the month of May, the month of August, and then a season finale in November again. So I think I think we're on like a pretty good schedule now. We are going to be so close to 100 episodes by the end of this season, but it'll be season 5 before we actually get there. So we're getting there. We're almost there. One little change that I do think you guys will be happy about. Remember in season two when I did the taco breaks, like little five, 10-minute episodes during off weeks? We're going to give it a try again and do something similar. I will keep it up for as long as I can, but no promises. My plate is already broken in half. All my food's on the floor. I have no business adding more to it, but we're going to try anyway. So on Tuesdays, when there is not a new full-length episode... There will be a minisode, and this time around, we're going to call them true crime story times. Which that's the thing I used to do on TikTok. Um, basically, I would give a brief overview of one of the books available at Deadtime stories. So we're going to do that kind of in longer format. Um, so for a little while here, at least, I will be bringing you new content every Tuesday by way of either a full-length episode or a minisode. All right. I think that wraps it up for today at the 22-hour mark. Um, Thank you all for being patient and waiting on season four to arrive. Make sure that you are following me on all of the socials and here's kind of the social media hierarchy I've got going on right now. Um, TikTok is still my shiny new toy. I love it. I post quite a bit of content there so you definitely want to follow me there if you don't i am under scream queen 517 or you might just be able to search jen carpenter at this point i'm not sure um facebook the Sodad facebook page will always be the best place to go for episode information show information things like that the Sodad discussion group on facebook is also very active we've got a good community going on there so make sure that you've joined there as well um Instagram, I just kind of do the bare minimum with Instagram at this point and post the new episodes because uh, uh, I'm told I have to. <laughs> Twitter, I have given up on altogether at this point. Like, I quit. It's just not for me. It never was. Um, Patreon. If you haven't joined the Patreon party yet, there's a lot of good stuff there waiting for you. There are monthly bonus episodes, monthly giveaways. Sometimes I just mail everyone random shit for no reason. Letters, stickers, swag bags. The ability to choose an episode topic. Um, Patrons get early access and advertisement-free access to the episodes. So, so many things. Um, And once you sign up, you've got access to all of the back catalog of bonus episodes and things like that, which is pretty fun. So the link, it's just patreon.com slash so dead podcast. And I will see you next week for a little bit for our first true crime story time and then another new full episode of So Dead the week after that. Until then, keep shining, you magnificent what the fucks. So